Hello, friends. Coming up next is part two of my interview with Jeff Gilbert. Jeff was a drummer for Christian rock band Cutlass, and in my opinion, they are and were one of the greatest Christian rock bands of all time. In this conclusion, you will hear how Jeff decided to go from good to great. Welcome to another episode of the Uncommon Freedom Show. The purpose of this show is to inspire and equip you to reach your potential, maximize your impact, and live a great life while you make the world a better place. Freedom isn't man's invention, it was created by God. Together, we will explore the biblical principles, essential disciplines, and winning habits that help once average people lead the life they want instead of accepting the life they were given. My name is Kevin Tinter, and I am your host. You see a lot of greed mm. creep into the entertainment industry, mm. even if it's quote-unquote Christian entertainment, you know, Christian music and things like that. The reality is you have a lot of greedy people out there that are going to try and suck every... They're going to keep as much for themselves and only give the artist or the athlete mm. whatever they have to give them. Is that fairly accurate? I think it's accurate. I think... Um I think using language like that kind of villainizes other people trying to like, it's, it's like watching a bunch of hyenas trying to get a piece of the carcass. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it felt like back then everybody was in fight or flight. Mm -hmm. There's too many hands in the pot. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, um, and I'd say more than greed there, there was this idea of relationships or everything, but you see people, um, disavowing trust every given way, mm -hmm. you know, promise unkept promises all yeah. the time. You know, the moment um, you think you've got some, some sort of deal that works for everybody. It's a win-win next thing you know, they're, they're dropping out of that deal because they've just found something better. You know, so there's, there's a lot of distrust. I dealt with dis like I dealt with uh, trust issues for a long time mm -hmm. after that, because I could never count on anybody. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was promised so many different things um, guaranteed, look me in the eye, you know, my, my word is solid as Oak handshake, yeah. you know, and within days it's like, oh yeah, no, no, I never agreed to that. Wow. And so it's like, you just kind of deal with those blows all the time. It's kind of interesting when I first started hearing about Uber, mm -hmm. I loved it because as a consumer who sometimes needed a taxi, mm -hmm. Um, like when I go back all the way to 2000, when I was in at officer Cannon school for the Marine Corps, uh, we got, uh, Liberty basically like 24 hours off after like week three. And remember that the cabs would line up and like, I was a poor college married student at the time. And like what it cost to take a cab just from where our, uh, our bunk houses were uh -huh. to the, like the, the store on base, like that was a lot of money for me. And so I developed this kind of disdain for cabs because they literally were raking everyone over the coals. And if oh, you yeah. talk to anyone, they're like, oh, yeah, cabs are a ripoff. And then Uber comes out, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, man, I'm supporting this, you know, essentially small business guy yeah. who's making good money. He's providing me the same service at a much better price. And um, and then you get to where you're at now, and I talk to Uber drivers, and they're like, ah, you know, it sounds like Uber is taking and Lyft, you know, the, the companies are now taking – I think they were taking a much smaller percentage uh -huh. five years ago uh -huh. and they've evolved and now they're taking a much bigger percentage. And it kind of seems like that tends to happen in virtually every industry where, um, and I understand that as a company becomes public, you know, they have investors, they have people who put their necks out on the line and they deserve to be rewarded for that. Mm. 
but it does seem like uh, there's this not willingness to pay the worker his worth. Yeah. Or even a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and uh, that's too bad. I agree. It's a shame. And Uber is now like three or four times more expensive than it was. Right. You know, it's, it's basically the same as a cabin. Yeah. 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 It used to be 13 bucks to get me to the airport. Now it's 60. Yeah. It is crazy. Okay. Yeah. So it's a bummer. Um, take us through the life of being on tour. Um, I've always wondered how the heck do rock stars, musicians, how do they possibly stay healthy? Um, just because I would think your sleep is very inconsistent. Mm -hmm. You know, the ability to exercise probably takes a tremendous amount of, uh, intentionality. Mm -hmm. And then I have no idea what the food and diet is, looks like. Yeah. What, what was, what was at least your experience? Man, my mindset was so different back then. I wish I had friends like you in my life then, uh, (laughs) because my wife has always been very health conscientious. She's very, very in tune with her, with her body. And, and, um, she was always pushing me to exercise, but my drumming was so active that I felt like that was my exercise. Understandable. You know, especially when we played a headline set, you know, yeah. 70 to 90 minutes, I was burning probably a thousand calories minimally, yeah. you know, doing that. But um, food wise and sleep wise, I think are the two biggest contributors of unhealth. And I think mental health too on the, on the road. Mm-hmm. So you've got one side of it where it's the most fun atmosphere you could ever be in. Yeah. It's like, you're looking at it, your day-to-day life is so much fun. Because you're touring on a bus, which is every kid's dream, at least a musician. Right. It's like, I still get giddy when I get on a tour bus for yeah. a lot. It's just fun, you yeah. know? Um, and, you know, we, uh, we would literally, like, our, you got to be in your prime of the day at 9 o'clock at night. Yeah. So you've, you're, you're unintentionally on a time zone that's, like, you know, un, unrealistic. Because right. you go to bed at, you know, probably on average 3 or 4 a.m. You wake up at noon or 1 the next day. Uh, you know, you rub the sleep out of your eyes in the middle of the afternoon to go see what's for breakfast, which is technically lunch. Mm-hmm. But we had a, what's called a rider, which a lot of people know what a rider is. But our rider, we would basically kind of say like, you know, you're going into a different city every day. Mm-hmm. And it's really helpful for the, for the promoter to know what, what kind of foods to offer for catering, where it's like, okay, Monday will be cold cuts and veggie trays for lunch and some sort of like meat and carb for dinner. Mm-hmm. Next night will be Mexican. Night after that will be Italian, whatever. So it's like you kind of get in this routine where you realize, oh yeah, we, we get lasagna every Wednesday. You know what I mean? Okay. Like everything is built in for you. So you really don't have the option to say, oh, I'm craving a, a fresh salad, you know, with whatever dressing. It's like, well, that's your food for today. So right. that's what you have. Unless you want to go off, you know, out of the venue and, go find your own food, which and for me, I was broke. You're so paying I'm out like, of your own pocket for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, well, I'll just eat what's available. Uh, you know, and then the the worst part was, so if breakfast is lunch, lunch is dinner, which nobody really wants to eat a big meal right before you play a show. Right. So we had what, the, our last meal today was called bus food. And if you can imagine, the only options of bus food would be like Chili's, appetizer trays that's all deep fried you know mozzarella sticks and like buffalo wings and pizza and you know stuff like that so your last meal of the day is at like 11 or 12 at night and that's what you're eating and then you're hanging out for you know two or three hours afterward just to decompress from the day as you're traveling down the road to the next venue and then you rinse and repeat and so there were some guys that were really hardcore about like bringing their bike on the road and they can go you know on a 20 mile ride you know, bicycle. There's some guys that would bring some weights, like some 
free weights and things that we throw in the bay of the bus and maybe mm-hmm. you can have a little, you know, prison yard style workout session. Right. Uh, but you know, the arenas, one good thing about the arenas is you could run stairs. Okay. And so when you, you just have to be so intentional, like you said, uh, because I would say 95% of, of tour staff do not work out. Right. And so you don't really have a, a culture in the community. Yeah. That's all conscientious. Actually, we toured with a band casting crowns and my wife went out on the road with us and mm-hmm. she set up a, like basically a hit workout every single day. Okay. And by, I'd say mid tour, she probably had like 16 or 17 tour personnel jumping in where we could make sure like when the crew was done setting up the stage and everything was dialed in, like we wanted everybody to be a part of it. So it's awesome. like crew band, you know, tour family, whatever, like we just found a locker room with some stuff and my wife's going to take us through a workout, you Very know? Cool. So that was the first time. And then we kind of applied that to winter jam too, where we would just set up the workout insanity. And we probably had about 20 people on average, different band members, different crew guys going in there and just trying to do their best. So that definitely kind of got me through some, some rougher days, but yeah, that's, that's kind of a day in the life of touring. Then you take the Christian aspect out of it and you go to yeah. the modern hip hop rock star type lifestyle yeah. where you're throwing in uh, women uh-huh. and, you know, uh, you know, just major promiscuity. Yeah. And then you've got yeah. alcohol and drugs yeah. and things like that. Like yeah. the truth is the, the health factor is about as low as you can go. Oh, totally. I mean, one of my best friends who's like a brother to me. He was the drummer for One Direction. Okay. And they toured the world and obviously they exploded overnight and had a crazy career. I mean, his last tour with them was all stadiums. So their average attendance was like over 100,000 people a night. And in reality, they could have gotten anything they wanted. Mm-hmm. Anything. It did not matter. Anything they could have had at a snap of their fingers. Now, yeah. I'm not saying they did that. Right. But, I mean, you're looking at it, uh, you know, a culture, most of tour culture. Um, yeah, I'd say that there's a lot of guys that have learned from our forefathers of, of rock stardom and music where it's like we see the guys that we love and admire so much. And then you meet them in person. You're like, oh, that's not what I thought it was. Yeah. You know, these guys that you're like, oh man, they did so much cocaine. How are they still alive? It's like, yeah, they're, they're dead inside. You know what I mean? So it's like, or just the amount of people they've abused or manipulated or, you know, just, um, you know, there's, there's so many stories of girls that woke up on tour buses in a city six or seven hours away from their home because they were partying with the band and nobody was paying attention to the fact that they were driving down the road and they're like, cool, get out, figure out how to get home. Oh my God. I'm done with you. You know, like, so there, I think that there's a, in, in a lot of places there's, there's more morality, you know? Um, but I'll, I'll certainly tell you with the general market touring that I have been exposed to and I have done, there's still plenty of that where it's just kind of like, for me, it's, it's completely empty. I'm not, I'm not Mm -hmm. even interested in it. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of guys that, that fall into that for sure. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, what is your favorite Cutlass song? Uh, I'm sure it's hard to pick that, but uh, well, what's your favorite? Um, you know, it's so funny to be honest with you. I've been out of the band for so long. <laughs> I'm throwing you under the bus. Yeah, huh? you are. I'm going to have to like jump on Apple music or Spotify real quick. Um, you know, I would say, uh, you know, there's a song that I co-wrote um, called I'm with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's off a record called believer. Okay. And um, I wrote it with my dear friend, John Maddox uh who i think would be great to have on your show by the way john's amazing um so john and i co-wrote that song together and it's about my son when he was uh you know when my wife was pregnant with him awesome and it was this ode to kind of like 
man, I don't know how to be a dad. I'm scared to be a dad. I don't want to let you down. I don't want to fail at this. So, you know, it's really about me being with you. Yeah. I'm with you. Uh, from, from the process of him being in the womb, like mm-hmm. I'm already going to lock in now as a dad. Yeah. Um, fatherhood doesn't start after your baby's born. I believe it starts at conception. Absolutely. Um, and so um, that, that was just kind of it. So I'd say egotistically, that's my favorite song. I'm really proud of that song. I think it's got a great chorus. I think it's, it's got a, a message that's very near and dear to my heart. So how about your favorite Cutlass song to drum to? Um, there's a song called the disease and the cure, mm-hmm. um, off the record to know that you're alive. Okay. And, uh, yeah, go ahead and check that out. Tell me what you think in the comments below. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that song rips live and we could get, you know, the, the most not rock and roll person on their feet and wanting to, you know, mosh around to that one. So sweet. Yeah. Sweet. Um, and then how about, and then we're going to turn corners to kind of, you know, the, the mission that you're on right now. And I know you also have a, timeline, oh, you're good. so, no. um, what about your favorite place to play or you've, you've been all over the world? Uh, what's the coolest place you've ever played? Or if you could play one last concert, where would it be? Well, okay. So Radish show we ever did was in New Zealand. Okay. Uh, we played a festival called parachute fest. Okay. And that was out of control. Cool. Uh, there's like 25,000 people there. Um, but the way that they organized that festival was unlike any festival organization I've ever seen. They just, they, they took care of everybody at, at such an incredible level. And that's a beautiful country, beautiful people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I'd say New Zealand was, was the most memorable. That's the first thing that came to mind. Um, when I think of awesome moments, um, you know, we did this, this event called EO youth day in Holland, uh, at a soccer stadium and that stage and production was bigger than just about any show you've ever seen. It was basically a U2 level show. Wow. Um, that the country of Holland puts on uh, in collaboration with the Catholic church. Wow. So I guess it's their way of saying like, okay, well, if we, uh, if we made, you know, prostitution and drugs legal, we might as well <laughs> support church opportunities too, yeah. I guess. I don't know. But anyways, that was insane. And, and those kids were just amazing. Like that was, that was really cool. Um, you know, but there's also places here in the States where we had fans that were just so super supportive, you know, like they'd sing 10 times louder than us. Yeah. Um, those were always cool moments. Um, I loved playing the the little club shows okay. you know, where they're just packed and sweaty. And yep. um, I mean, there's just epic moments there. So if you uh, had to pick a favorite place. If I had to pick a favorite place uh, to basically do one last show. Yeah. Oh, man. Um I don't want to spend too much time on this. I would say something uh, to the degree of like chain reaction in Anaheim, California, Okay, you know, like kind of that club thing. Like I would look at it like uh, it's, it's all the people that mattered most to us. The, you know, the fans that I have in my brain right now that were just so supportive. And, you know, um, if we could put all those people in one room and just kind of have one last party, I think that'd be cool. Awesome. Very cool. All right, cool. So talk to us about, um, we had a really cool conversation a couple months ago about your transition from Cutlass yeah. and to just kind of that next chapter. Uh, take us through that. Yeah. So just to keep the story tight for you, um, you know, I left the band kind of like, I got to figure out my life. Um, I have a son and a daughter now or a daughter on the way. Mm-hmm. And, um, my wife and I were pining for California, to be honest with you. Um, we were in Nashville. We just, you know, we, we needed to be there for the time where they were there for three years. And I just knew that being in a band wasn't sustainable and there was no, there's no, you know, light at the end of the tunnel. Right. As far as how to support my family. 
uh, both uh, financially and physically. You know, I was gone so much that my wife was practically a single mom. And I had a friend who played drums for um, Ben Folds. And um, he told me a story. I, I remember hanging with him. He told me a story how um, his five-year-old girl uh, was sitting on his lap on the tour bus right before the bus was departing town for another three weeks or whatever mm. to go on tour. And so she kissed him and she said, thank you, daddy, for coming home to visit me. Oh, my gosh. And he told me, you're on the trajectory for your son to same, say the same thing to you. Wow. So how much longer are you going to be in the band before it gets to that? And I was like, wow. So I basically was in the band for about five more months. Mm -hmm. You know, um, my son was 18 months old and uh, I got an opportunity to go back to California. We took it. Um, it did not work out very quickly. It, it fell apart mm -hmm. uh, in a very difficult, hard, hurtful way. Um, but I really believe that every single process, whether it's, you know, what feels like failure or what feels like a low blow, it's all experiences that I need to take into my, you know, I guess a process of educating myself and understanding what, where I want to go, what I want to do, how I want to treat people. And so I kind of walked backwards into nonprofit development work and I didn't know anything about it, but I, I built this great, I guess, uh, web of relationships and friendships around the world playing music because mm -hmm. the one thing that I cared most about than anything else was the people that I did it with and the new people that I met and how I treated them and to make sure that I wasn't just some, you know, rock star to be served, but like, how can I serve these people? Yeah. Here's a security guy in this arena that his job is to sit in a chair all day long mm -hmm. just in case something gnarly happens. Right. That's his life. So if all these people are walking past him and not even saying hi or offering him a bottle of water or chopping it up with him, it's like, he's not my servant. You know yeah. what I mean? So like when you meet people like that, by the end of the night, you're getting each other's contacts, staying in touch, like, or, you know, presidents of labels or whatever. It's like any, anybody in between. That's what I care about. I mm -hmm. care about like, man, how can we just effectively fuse community together? Even if we live on the other side of the world, there's people I could call in 40 different countries and say, Hey, I'm coming to town. Can I sleep on your floor? And they, they wouldn't make me sleep on their floor, but they'd be like, dude, my home's your home. Yeah. yeah and and I, I feel the same way about my home. Yeah. Uh, and so when I got into nonprofit development, I just started making phone calls asking for um, not support, but just more like, Hey, do you think this is something I should do? Because I don't know anything about this and I'm got this opportunity. And I had so many people say, go for it. That sounds perfect for you. I'm like, all right, cool. So I started working with an organization called Food for the Hungry. I was going out and speaking for them at live events. And then they, they hired me on to basically put together strategic collaborations with tours. And so artists could partner with Food for the Hungry, talk about their work from their stages, and then bring that into their fan base and say, hey, here's some kids uh, in Guatemala or Rwanda or Haiti or Asia, wherever, you know, the 16 different countries around the world. Let's go fight for these kids. And I know you and I talked about it. You sponsor a couple of kids. I sponsor... Right. Uh, you know, a small community of kids now. And, um, you know, it's it's just such incredible work. So I started going around. My travel schedule was nothing like my band, but I started traveling a little bit. Okay. And I would take people to Tanzania, Ethiopia, South Sudan, Dominican. I'm, you know, all around the world. And we'd go witness these projects and we'd mm -hmm. witness the transformation. And then we'd basically go, what do we want to do about it? Like, how can we help, you know, extend and expand this program, right? And so... It was all relationships, right? Um, you know, I'd start touring with different artists, whether it's General Market or, or Christian, 
When you say general market, is that secular music industry? Yeah, okay. yeah. So I'd say the Christian music industry is about 15% of the music market entirely. Okay. And the, re- the 85% would be general market, which would be hip-hop, rock, pop, country, everything. you know, e- everything. Yeah. So uh, general market is like non-Christian, okay. I should say. Uh, and so, um, you know, when I was working with Food for the Hungry, you know, I was able to help rebuild their artist program team in Nashville. There's a lot of people that were kind of interchanging. Uh, we, we had not nearly as many sponsors then as we do now, just getting the right people in the right positions and offering those opportunities. And so I started getting a lot of people calling me up going like, hey, can you help me with this nonprofit? Can you help me with that nonprofit? Hey, do you know anybody that could help fund this uh, new program that we're trying to, you know, get off the ground? And so I'd start making phone calls and, you know, I call friends that, you know, I knew, um, you know, were in different positions, whether it was, uh, you know, networking positions or opportunity, whatever. I just call me like, hey, this is what's in front of me right now. Do you have the ability or do you know anybody who would be interested in this specific thing? And next thing I knew, I'd have a friend cut a $50,000 check and I wouldn't ask. I'd just say, hey, I want to invite you into this and just see if it's something that you want to be a part of with me. And next thing I know is they're funding something or they're getting me in touch with somebody else. There was just this network ability where we were getting stuff done. And it was just like, wow, this is really cool. Like, I don't feel like I'm desperate for anything. I feel like I'm growing in this. Um, but then finally, somebody said, you need to start your own agency where you can just consult and help nonprofits grow. Mm-hmm. So I Googled how to start a business eight or nine years ago. And I've always been very entrepreneurial. My parents are like the most supportive people in the world, but they're not entrepreneurial at all. Right. Your dad was career yeah. uh, postal carrier. Yeah. Happy yeah. with salary. Never invested a penny in his life. Yeah. Mom's a, you know, uh, you know, painter, crafter, um, had a little crafting side hustle. You know right. what I mean? Um, but I was always like, no, big picture. I want to grow something. I want to build something. I want to like, I want to, I'm, I'm very much a performer in that way. Um, and so I, I immediately just started a DBA and I told Food for the Hungry, hey, you guys want me back in Nashville. I'm going to stay in California. I'll consult for you and I'll help you out there. And they said, yes. Well, I was like, great. And so then I started working with another cause called Save the Storks. That's how we met. That's how we met. And um, they are a phenomenal organization that is completely reframing and and helping people really understand the emphasis of not just pro-life versus pro-choice, you know, and and being in the middle of that war, of that narrative war. But they were really helpful in educating me and so many others on the articulation and expression of why we care about others. Mm Mm-hmm. And what fighting for somebody else's life looks like. And I was like, okay, because they wanted me to come in and help them build more or less an artist program opportunity like Food for the Hungry or Compassion International or World Vision. And um, because those are those child sponsorship organizations are really the only ones that are out on those tours. They don't have people connecting, you know, Save the Storks doesn't have anybody connecting them to artists to be able to build a, a you know, an opportunity like that. Right. I was like, cool, that's what I'll do. So instead of an artist going, okay, I have four different organizations that all sound very similar wanting to partner with me, I'd like to do something else, but none of those other organizations have the bandwidth or the ability or understanding on how to build that partnership. So I guess we're just going to go with one of those things. Now I can go, hey, artist, you have this huge heart for, for prisoners and you know convicts or mm-hmm. families of convicts. And I've got this organization over here who would love to work with you and build, you know, help clarify that story of what they do and how they help these people. Do you want to do something together? They're like, finally, somebody's coming to me with an idea that we can actually execute. So again, I walked into this kind of service backwards 
Um, and to date, what's crazy to me, dude, is uh, across these different platforms or organizations and programs that we built, I care deeply about giving the common person with a common income the ability to really, really change the world. That's I awesome. care deeply about that. Yeah. Um, where it doesn't have to be somebody who's just very well off or successful in their business. It's not that you know, those folks are the only ones that can really change the world. Mm -hmm. But I look at it on a subscription basis. You and I are used to going, oh yeah, I'll, I'll pay 10 bucks for music. I'll pay mm -hmm. 10 bucks for Netflix right. a month. You know, it's like that 10 bucks just automatically comes out of my account and I can watch Netflix, right? Yep. So what if you had the same ability to give with this, with very crystal clear reporting back to you on what your giving is contributing to and the measurable impact that it's having on those specific programs that we're talking about. So there's no black hole giving. It's not like this child is starving. If you don't help them, they're going to die. Right. And all of a sudden it's like, I'm emotional. I'm going to give. But then next, you know, thing I get next report or letter, or whatever I get is there's another kid starving. It's like, yep. well, what happened to the other kid that I exactly. thought? It's like, is that kid going to be okay? Like, it's always about, we just keep needing. And for me, I'm going, I look at it like an investment, mm -hmm. the same way that I would sit down with my financial advisor and I'm going to say, all right, financial advisor, I, I'm going to give you hundred bucks a month, 10,000 bucks a month, whatever. I want you to go invest it. And that advisor goes, all right, cool. Here's the portfolio. Here's what we're going to invest your money. I'm going to give you reports on how yep. those investments are going, right? Why is nobody doing that with nonprofit? Yes. Why is nobody doing that with charity? Yes. So what we're building, my company's called Goodness. And what we're building right now is a portfolio of nonprofits that we've, uh, vetted internally deeply we've sat down with their ceos with their team with their c-suites with their teams it doesn't matter if this nonprofit brings in 500k a year or 500 million a year mm -hmm. we're going to vet the snot out of it and we're going to look at it going is this leader somebody that we can look at and say if we put two million dollars residually in your bank account are you going to honor that fund and are you going to grow it in the way that you believe you can grow it and we're going to help you grow it right but we're also going to report back to every single person who gives a little into that fund and show them, hey, when you have 10,000 people giving $30 a month, this is this is literally what we are capable of doing with these organizations. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at it going, we've got 10 organizations right now in the queue. This is all the different programs that they're doing. This is all the different goals that they have. This is what's in front of them right now. And this is how they can fix the issues that are in front of them. So we're going to start, we're going to start bringing that fund into the pot and making it work. And every single one of those donors is going to feel like an owner of that. It doesn't matter that it's just $30 a month. You deserve to know that your residual giving, just like you residually give to Netflix and Spotify right. and everything else that you're subscribed right. to, probably, what is it, like 16 subscriptions on average per household, I think, probably. in the country? I think yeah. it's about 16. Yeah, it's crazy. We're used to it. It's easy. You know what I mean? Um, and so if you budget that in, but we're giving you all of that measurable impact, that's your ROI is measurable impact. Yep. How many moms chose life for their babies and are being loved on and supported in their communities because of Save the Storks? Yeah. So I just got a report back from Save the Storks. We had two buses, mobile medical units on the road when I first started with them eight years ago. They just sent a report that they're at 60 right now and they're shooting for 100 by the end of this year. Wow. So thanks to friends like you, Kevin, we're making such a major difference. And when you're looking at that going... Are you kidding me right now? Like you're actually telling me that we're not just trying to get in there and manipulate a girl in front of an abortion, you know, uh, clinic to change her mind. And now she's on her own 
with this huge, you know, task in front of her. Right. Save the Storks is changing the game on how we're able to walk with somebody through that process and give them real true education, really truly empowering them in the world of choice to be able to make the best choice possible for themselves. And we're able to give them everything they need to really grow out of the circumstance that they're in. It takes time. Yes. And it takes that commitment to residually give for that time and that effort to pay off, right? And so I, I remember in 2019, Save the Storks had been able to serve and help over 10,000 clients uh, that were going through that process. And that's when I believe there was about uh, 30 to 40 mobile medical units on the road. And so for you to tell me now, you know, this organization gives me this report back going, because there's about 12 or 13,000 monthly donors mm -hmm. that are residually giving month after month, they have, uh, they have that machine of sustenance to be able to grow and expand and scale and to be able to continue to do what they do in more cities, in more areas. And so you're starting to see this full shift. You know what I mean? And so I look at that with people that have gone through trauma. I look at that for people that have been enslaved in sex trafficking rings. Yep. I look at that with so many different, you know, uh, opportunities to say we can do this right. And by doing it right, that means we all consistently give, even if it's just 30 bucks a month. Yeah. Um, what, what happens is when you have a tribe of people that care about others and that are saying, it doesn't really hurt me to, to give $30 away per month. Mm -hmm. But what I care about, what hurts you is if you're not getting feedback on what that's doing. Absolutely. Right. Yep. And so what we care about is going, you need to know what is actually getting accomplished. And that is what keeps people going. And that's what makes people want to double and triple their giving because they know that there's ROI, right? Absolutely. So anyways, that's what I've been up to. Um, been a ton of work. We started officially in 2020 and we were kind of building out the, uh, the framework for it since there weren't any live events and everything was up in the air, you yeah. know what I'm saying? But we are full steam ahead now um, and, you know, busier than ever, but just trying to pour into my family as best as I can in this season. And, uh, Got my son on the road with me. We did a road trip out from Southern California here to Phoenix, and we just had the best time together. Um, now we're about to get back in the car and head back home, but it's just like watching these opportunities unfold. And I'm telling you, Kevin, right now, I so many times of the day, I go, I don't fully understand what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to do what I'm called to do. I don't know how this is all going to pan out, but I know I have a vision and I know that I'm going to educate myself to the best of my ability. I'm going to call up my friends who have been there and done that. I'm going to get advice. Um, but so far, we've, uh, you know, in the last eight years, I've been associated with teams where we've raised over $250 million. Amazing. And that has pulled hundreds of thousands of people out of extreme poverty. That has served and helped tens of thousands of, of women and, and babies saved today. That has, I mean, I, I just, I, I sit back for a minute and I go, holy cow how have I even been a part of this? Like at, at any part at all, you know, and I was just a drummer slugging away, yeah. making 2,500 bucks a month, 10 right. years ago. And now I'm in front of this going, I just took that step. You so, know? um, as we land the plane, cause I know you got to get on the road, um, to head back home and I appreciate your time. Um, the conversation we had a couple months ago, uh, we were talking about the decision you had. We were both kind of going through a similar decision at the same time, mm. uh, I was going to have a conversation with the police chief to lose my quote unquote secure government job. You know, everyone's like, why in the world you got your pension? You're giving that up. You're giving up your insurance. Yeah. And you, on the other hand, you people like, dude, 
you're a rock star, you're touring, like you're living mm -hmm. the life. Yeah. Why would you give up that security, right? Yeah. And one of my passions is helping people reach their potential, maximize their impact. But a lot of times the S word, which is quote unquote security, mm -hmm. keeps people in a prison. Yeah. Um, so as we kind of land the plane on this interview, because I know we'll do another one someday, what encouragement do you have for people that are getting by, they're living in security, and that's really, it's the ball and chain that's keeping them from having a bigger impact in the world. Hmm. Yeah, um, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that there's a lot of different personality types out there. Mm -hmm. um, if, you, if you enjoy a simple salary and you're content and you're not the type that has big vision, which is not a ton of people, but if that's you, then... Enjoy your life at that. And I would say influence and love on and support your friends and the people closest to you. That's good. Um, I look at my dad, for example. He mm -hmm. has impacted so many people just by being available. Yes. Right? So I think that's important. I think that's okay. But I will say that if you are somebody who are in a position of wishing, I wish it was different. I wish I could have that. I wish I could do that. I wish I could have that lifestyle. Um, you have to stop wishing. You got to get off the couch. Mm -hmm. You got to get off Instagram and looking at all the people that are doing all the things that you wish you could do. And it, you got to just start. And I know that it, that sounds like, well, how do you start? Like, you got to just start. You got to start somewhere. Google how to start a business. Like I did. I didn't know exactly what my business was going to be. I just Googled how to start a business and I started educating myself. We have so many resources in front of us now today than we did even five years ago that there's no possible way you should be living paycheck to paycheck unless you're going through a process of growth. You know, it's like when you're investing and sacrificing to build something like for me, I've, I've made very little money in my life and I've made a great amount of money in my life. And I'm in a position right now where I'm investing in myself. I'm investing in my business so it can grow. Right. And so I'm taking big risks and I'm making sacrifices. Uh, and, you know, there's there's nights where we want to go to the nice dinner. We say, hey, not tonight. Let's just let's let's be smart mm -hmm. because we're building something. Right. And that's typically the hardest season for me, because that's when I start to get afraid. That's when I start to lose courage. That's why I start to lose vision, because I'm going, oh, shoot. You know, are we secure? And that's that's such a good reminder, Kevin, because it's like there is no such thing as security. Yep. There, there's really not. Yep. You know what I mean? Um, so if you really believe in a vision that you have, if you believe that you, uh, there's something that you want to get into that you're just afraid to, I say you have to face that fear. You have to get over it. You have to push through it. You know, um, let me ask you this, Kevin. What are you most afraid of? I would say I'm... I, I guess probably two things. Number one is failing as a father. And for me, like the ultimate failure as a father is not seeing all my kids in heaven mm. someday. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second one is um, falling short of what God put me on earth to do. Mm. Like that the reach potential maximize impact. That's not just for me, but it's, it's me helping others do that. So for me, my other thing that I'm really afraid of is not stewarding that well, yeah. basically. Yeah. So we have the same fears. So I've been really thinking about this. 
because I've been, I've been, I'm going to be totally honest with you. When we're, it doesn't matter how successful somebody seems or looks, they're still going through a process too. Mm-hmm. For me, I've noticed, okay, number one, my, a word that has been really focusing, that my spirit has been just committed to this year, reflecting on last year, like, you know, at the end of December, you're like, am I going to have a word for the year for 2022? Yeah. Um, you know, and a lot of people will have a word. Um, and typically that word burns out within the first, you know, 30 or 60 days of the year. Right. For me, it's, it's, a, it's called a rhema word. A great friend of mine out of Minneapolis taught me this about six years ago, seven years ago. He's like, you need to reflect on your life, reflect on where God has you. And you need to ask the Lord for his rhema word, which is God's spoken word. And it's typically not a word that you want to be your word. Mm. It's really a word that God wants to showcase in you and to exemplify and to clarify in you. And that word for me this year is courage. And I'm already having to flex that because I've recognized now going, shoot, I'm anxious about stuff that I, that I stuff way down yeah. that I don't want to deal with. I don't want to think about. Um, and my biggest fear when I, when I'm dealing with courage and I have to have courage in it is failure just capital F failure at anything. But the most, like the biggest components for me is failure in my marriage and failure as a father. Mm-hmm. Those are the two biggest things I'm afraid of. Not because I think I'm capable of failing there, but because it's the most important thing in the world to me, right? Is to honor my bride, Shannon, and to honor my kids and to be that, be that person in their life that they can go, everything in life can be chaotic, but when we're near dad, when we're near husband, there's, there's, there is safety there. There is, there's peace there. There's contentment there. Right. But ultimately like my personality is I want to go after something and I cannot fail at it. And when I do fail, I take it really hard. Right. But every single time I get back up, I brush off the dirt and I keep going and I keep going and I keep going. And I do look at other people, you know, you look at the Walt Disney's or you look at the Steve jobs or you look at the Beatles and you look at these different entities in history the Beatles were turned down by like every label on the planet. Yep. Right. Walt Disney. I mean, just hearing about Disneyland alone, let alone all the other stuff that he was doing before. Yeah. He just was relentless. He believed in it and he would not be stopped, you know? And now you're looking at the biggest brand name on the face of the earth. Right. Right. Um, that guy could have quit so many times and we wouldn't have had Disneyland. We wouldn't have had, you know, all the movies, all the songs, all the stories, like none of that would have existed. Somebody else would have done something similar. But the point I'm trying to make is, is you were created with the same resources as Walt Disney. You were created with the same amount of seconds in the day, Wow. Yeah. you know, with the, with the, the amount of, you know, air in the, in the atmosphere, um, you know, depending on where you were born for me, I shouldn't have had any opportunities. Mm-hmm. I shouldn't have had the uh, ability to do what I did as a young kid. I was just planted in that spot and I looked around me and I was resourceful, you know, but it ultimately came down to relationship and it came down to drop your pride, know that you're not perfect, know that you're going to have to figure it out, know that you're going to fail a bit, but don't let that stop you. And so I think so often the biggest thing that tries to stop me from doing what I do is fear of failure, Mm -hmm. fear of if I try, it's going to fail. And that was a waste of time. And I have to just, I have to literally rebuke that idea and say, well, then I would have never married Shannon. I would have never become a father. Yeah. You know, um, if I'm just going to roll over now and say, yeah, I'm just going to do my, my horrible job that I hate at the pay, you know, grade that I hate. And I have five days of misery for two days of 
what would be freedom. Right. That's garbage. You know what I mean? So anyways, um, I'm passionate about it because it's something that I have to live out. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think we talked about this, but when I made the, well, I mean, I had a unique experience where I clearly felt God say, Kevin, are you going to quit and go pursue this business that Becca started full time? Are you going to trust me? Or are you going to trust your 10 step exit plan to mm-hmm. be financially secure? And I'm all about being wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm not a proponent of being foolish mm-hmm. and making, you know, the, the Arizona lottery, your retirement plan. That's quite frankly, stupid. But the flip side is I remember having a conversation with my chief when I gave him my two weeks notice and I said, Hey, um, I will never regret if I only get to spend one year at home with my family, I will never regret it. And I would just challenge other people like, okay, what, what scares you? But what also do you feel your heart pulling you towards? Yeah. And I always hesitate to use heart because I think, you know, follow your heart isn't necessarily uh-huh. good advice, uh-huh. but like, what do you feel this burning for yeah. is yearning for and what's the worst case scenario if it doesn't work out right mm. you could probably go back to your old job yeah you could probably you know the worst case scenario just isn't that bad but yet some people are willing to just live where they're at now because they're afraid of 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 they just don't have the courage yeah. to go after it yeah. so hey bro thanks for your time um i look forward to having more conversations we're very like-minded i know Same. we're passionate about abundance and just serving the world mm. and uh, and helping people thrive but uh, i'm grateful for the friendship man. and uh look forward to talking again soon likewise man thanks all right see ya hey friends thanks again for listening to this episode of the uncommon freedom show please join me next time as we continue to learn how people are reaching their potential maximizing their impact and making the world a better place Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform to make sure you don't miss any episodes. Your five-star reviews are greatly appreciated and help others join the Uncommon Freedom Revolution. Remember to share this with your friends and family if you think they are ready to go from surviving to thriving. 